0: Welcome. We're glad that you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout Advent, we observe Christ's first coming, his birth, and also look forward to his second coming. Each of our four weeks leading up to Christmas, we will reflect on what Jesus brings, love, peace, joy, and hope, and study these using the New Testament letters to the early church. This will be a fitting conclusion to our year-long journey through the Bible, which we've called Love This Book. We are looking forward to celebrating Advent and would enjoy even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Are your ears burning? They've been talking about us, the church. They've been talking about our money. Forbes Magazine published an article where they surveyed 1,300 megachurches in America. A megachurch is a church of 2,000-plus in attendance. Among the many things they discovered was that these 1,300 churches, the combined annual income, $8.5 billion dollars. They also discovered that the buildings involved in these 1,300 megachurches cost $1.5 billion of yearly maintenance. That's more than the annual income of the country of Mali in West Africa. As the old Southern preacher used to say, it seems we're building million-dollar launching pads to send up firecrackers. Let's give them something to talk about. They're talking about our politics you would be surprised at the calls we get here on a weekly basis at Waterstone, just because we're a church. A while back, I took a call from a lawyer in New York State who was representing a group of clients who were trying to get the commandant of the Air Force Academy fired for showing bias towards evangelicals. I was so captured by her diction and her seeming knowledge of the law that she went on for 15 minutes before I said a word. Finally, I broke in and I said, ma'am, you do understand that we are an evangelical church. And she says, I suspected as much, but I've learned this over the years, that if you want to stir up a good fight, you have to get churches involved. Let's give him something to fight about. They're talking about our zeal. I've always been amused by how evangelicals have been portrayed on network television. My favorite show, my favorite evangelical, would be Angela on The Office, who is a professing Christian, uptight, judgmental, and morally superior, and all the while a hypocrite carrying on an illicit relationship with the beet farmer. Before the office, there was ER, the great medical drama. You may remember that one year of ER, they had a resident on there for the year who uh, was an evangelical Christian, but she was more concerned about praying with her patients than learning how to intubate them properly. Incompetent by reason of faith, I guess. More recently, there's been the great show called The Good Place. Uh, Michael Schurz, and in the first season, Ted Danson, the main character, makes this astounding statement where he said that probably in the end, every religion got it about 5% right. That's quite a statement. What you find out by the end of that season is that the good place is no place for an evangelical. Let's give him something to talk about, a little mystery to figure out. Do you know who's listening, by the way? God's listening all the talk. Jesus is concerned about all the talk. He actually wants us to be talked about. He wants us to be remarkable in our culture, but not for our buildings, not for our zeal, and not for our money. Do you know what Jesus wants them to be talking about us? He put it this way once, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's give him something to talk about. How about love, love, love? Year of our Lord, first Sunday of Advent, 2020 we're going to talk about love. By the way, just to set the table a little bit for the next few weeks, and I hope you'll join us either online. uh, We miss you, all those joining online out in the hub. We're just glad in some fashion we can be together. I was talking with a gentleman after the last service in tears, just saying how much we all miss being together during this time, and it's true. But uh, if you can join us in any way these next weeks, what we're going to be doing is talking about the traditional themes of Advent. Every local church is like the stable, right, that shows the glory of Christ to the world. That's our calling during Advent. And that glory is wrapped up traditionally in four words, love and peace, joy and hope. So the next four weeks, including today, love, peace joy, and hope. But what we're going to do is for the text of Scripture, for each of those words, we're going to preach from the New Testament letters. Because we're finishing this great year, 2020, going through the entire Bible that we've called Love This Book. So we're now in the New Testament letters. And to wrap that series, we're going to spend time in the New Testament letters with those themes. So I've chosen for today to talk about love, the new testament letter of first john why because the word love appears 51 times in the letter evidently john is writing to a church that was struggling with their love and how to love and so i thought it would be fitting for us to talk about love from the book of first john just to map out today where we're going to go so you can track first we're going to talk about how important love is. And that's going to have two parts. The first part is who God is. The second part is who we are. Love's important because of who God is. Love's important because of who we are. And then at the end, I just want to talk about a quick application of love that we can be involved with in these next weeks to come. The New Testament letters give this great word that we're going to talk about called Hospitality. Are you with me? Let's talk about love. Let's talk about how important love is. And the reason love is important, first of all, part one, is because God is love. Look at first John chapter four, verse eight from our text. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Can we just sit in that for a few moments? How about dipping the ocean with a thimble, right? God is love. What does that mean? That means more than just God is loving. It means more than just God loves us. It means the essence of God's being is love. It means that every action God undertakes is sourced in love, even His judgment and His jealousy. It means that every aspect of God we could ever think of, His goodness, His justice, His mercy, His grace, all of those aspects of God are pieces and parts of His love. Every conception, every imagination we have of God cannot be seen apart from His love. God is love. Let's go deeper. Ocean, thimble. It means that God is the source of love, that God in three persons has always, from all eternity, lived in a community of love where they submit to each other and where they serve each other, where they seek the other's benefit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or as Augustine called them, the lover, the beloved, and the love. All of them in this perfect and complete community experiencing the love of the being of God. By the way, you do know that, right, that just thinking about that and that first family and that perfect love, that means something very important for you and I. It means that you and I are non essential. How's it feel to be non essential? God did not create us because He needed us. We were not necessary to His existence. We are non essential. How's it feel? M. Craig Barnes, president of a seminary in Pittsburgh, He helps us reflect on that, being non-essential. Feeling better about yourself? (laughs) You should, because there's no blessing in being essential. Things that are essential cannot be loved. Why? Because you must have them. There's no choice. And love is always and only a choice. It was not necessary for God to love you. Moreover, nothing you do can induce God to love you more then he already does because the source of his love is within the triune God, not you. God doesn't love you because you're cute, smart, or important. No, the source of God's love for you is found in the love shared by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And out of the eternal depths of this love, God created human life. There is a kind of joy of relief and release in seeing ourselves as non-essential. Why? Because we understand that God's love for us is a choice that He made, and His character will complete the work of His love throughout all eternity. I don't know about you, but whew, burden lifted. (laughs) God chooses To love us. He's the source of love. He's also the show of love. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. What John's trying to get us to understand is really what the nature or definition of love is. Now, our culture gets all blurry on what love is, and you know, there's there's those that think love is romance and sex, there's those that think love is feelings and emotions. And all of those, and both of those, are really, really good things. In fact, you know, I confess to you, I've been addicted a little bit to the Hallmark Christmas specials. I'm craving Christmas. I want to get to that. And I think what most people think of like love, they want to think of, oh, it's just so nice and tolerant and accepting. It's a small town with a bakery where you can go in and everyone knows your name. You know, it's just, it's just love. That's all good, and we all need and want that. But God is thinking of something a bit deeper when he thinks of love. In fact, the New Testament authors have coined a word in the letters of the New Testament to describe God's love. You may have heard of it if you've been around church. It's the Greek word agape. It means giving love. It means seeking the other's benefit even if it costs you. It means acting not on feelings and not on emotion. It means doing the right thing as an act of the will for another person. In other words, you see this verse? What this verse says in, the, in that the Father is giving and sending His most precious Son into the world, it makes us understand that God is the most other-centered being in the universe that's love an other centered existence god did not send his son into the world so that he could feel better about himself or to prove his devotion to us he sent his son into the world so that we could live through him it benefits us the ones in need that's love one um 15th century theologian by the name of Silesius was uh, meditating on uh, uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He comes to that part where he says that, you know, when things get hard, you don't need to worry about what you'll wear, about what you'll eat. God will take care of you. And then remember that great kind of hyperbolic statement that Jesus says, but it, it just says that God's heart is on us. He says, God even has the hairs of your head numbered. Do you know what that means? That means, according to this 15th century theologian, that if God were to stop thinking about you, he would cease to exist. God, by definition, is thinking of us because he's the most other-centered being in the universe. So the first piece we know about God and his love is this, that it's to benefit the other. But it goes deeper. Verse 10, there's a deeper push of His love. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning or a forgiving sacrifice for our sins. Here's the deeper part of the love. It's not just doing what's in the best interest of the other person, but it's doing what's in the best interest of the other person, even when the other person wants nothing to do with it. Even when the other person is not interested. Even when the other person is not seeking it. God loving us, He did not wait around until we came to our senses. He came after us when we were enemies. To pour His love into our hearts. That's deep love. Let's riff on this, right? Let's break it down. If you love those you like, that's ordinary. If you love those who are unlike you, that's extraordinary. If you love those who are actively against you, that's revolutionary. Let's give them something to talk about. Love is important because God is love. But love is important, part two, because of who we are. And who are we? Verse seven, chapter four. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Who are we? We are those who have been born of God. Who are we? We have a father. Jesus invited us into relationship with him. Jesus called him Abba, Dad. We can call him Dad. As his daughters and as his sons, the apple does not fall far from the tree. We love because we've been loved by the Father. Love describes our existence because the DNA of the Father is in our genes now. In fact, Christ ascended to heaven And he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell every person who believes in Jesus Christ. The Spirit makes his home in us. And as Paul writes in Galatians 5, he produces fruit in us. And do you remember the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Now you think about all of those qualities, what are they? Relational. Each one relational. The sign of God at work in you and living in you is that you are moving towards others in love. Who are we? We are born of God, the Father's love. In us, But it doesn't stop there. It gets more radical. Look at verses 11 and 12. It doesn't just stop there. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love, this is astounding, is made complete in us. So, in other words, it's not just enough to be loved by God, yay, but the love that He gives us is only complete when we give it to another. No one has ever seen God. There's an interesting connection here to John's Gospel in chapter 1. When Jesus came onto the scene, John writes that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. And then there's this astounding statement about Jesus. It says, no one has seen the Father, John 1, except the Son, and the Son has put the Father into words. John 1.18. The Greek word is the word from which we get the word exegete, to expose the meaning. So, here's the parallel. In the same way that Jesus exegetes the Father, that is, puts Him into words so that we can understand God, we, in the same way now, put Jesus and His love into words so that the world can know the love of God. We make God visible. Isn't that amazing that God set the system up this way? That you and I are key players in the world knowing the love of God of God. That feels good from our side when we're able to do that. Talk about significance and purpose. But imagine what it feels like to be on the receiving end of the love of God through another person. It's got to feel something like this, this great line from Tennessee Williams classic play, The Rose Tattoo. Jack is talking to Rosa, and it says, and a few minutes later, you, Jack, said to me, Rosa, gee, you're beautiful. I, Rosa, said, excuse me, and ran to the ladies' room. Do you know why? To look at myself in the mirror. And I saw that I was, for the first time in my life, I was beautiful. You made me beautiful when you said I was. Folks, do you understand that you in this world are like a mirror? And when you engage another person, with the love of God, they look into that mirror you are and think to themselves, my, oh my, God must love me. That's calling, that's significance. So love is important because God is love and because we are born of God to reflect his love into this world. So what's it look like? Let's get, you know, down to the brass tacks, so to speak. Practically speaking, what are we talking about? Well, there's any number of ways in the New Testament letters where love is described in terms of what it looks like. One of the most common and repeated ones in almost every New Testament letter, the writers say something like this, if you're going to love other people, you must practice hospitality. Hospitality. So Think about hospitality. What is it? In American culture, hospitality means inviting over someone for dinner for three hours maximum. Don't come too early. Don't stay too late. That's kind of hospitality in American culture. Now, don't get me wrong. There is great value and power in that kind of hospitality, and we should be doing that. Uh, But that's not the biblical Idea of hospitality. We need to go back to their culture and to the Bedouin culture of hospitality. Do you know what it meant in their world when they say practice hospitality? It meant something like this in the ancient world. You need a place to stay? I got a room. You need a car or a camel? I've got one. You need a, a place to stay for another night? Of course you should stay another night. We haven't finished our conversations. You see, hospitality in the ancient world was something we would call extravagant and costly. What's mine is yours, and what you need, I will find. And if I don't, well, I won't stop trying. Hospitality. Do you know, I've been thinking this week, what it's uh, got to be like in the American world, where I've seen it, is in the hospital. No pun intended, but let's put the hospital back in the term hospitality. Do you know where hospitality lives in the American culture? It's in the ICU waiting room in the hospital. That's where you find hospitality. One pastor summed it up very well. I have spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room, watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child come home again? Will I, how will I live without my companion of 40 years? The intensive care waiting room is different than any other place in our world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first and a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his. And everyone understands this, and each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next Words, If only it will show improvement, and everyone knows that loving someone else in that moment is what life means. Long before we are in the intensive care waiting room, may we, Waterstone, learn to love like that. I see you. We have a very practical way to do it right in front of us to show extravagant and costly hospitality. Elliot mentioned it earlier, our Christmas Eve offering this year. Is going to go to the Severe Weather Shelter Network. I want you to have firsthand knowledge of this. The Severe Weather Shelter Network is a nonprofit organization, churches involved, and many people at Waterstone are involved. What they exist to do is that when the temperature in the winter gets below 32 degrees, they gather homeless people in vans from all over the city and all around Jefferson County, and they used to bring them to churches who would open up their doors and they would sleep and spend the night in a warm church building. Let's give them something to talk about. But because of COVID this year, we are not able to do it in church buildings. So what the Severe Weather Shelter Network has to do is buy hotel rooms whenever the temperature drops to 32 and below, and we're going to put our Homeless friends in hotel rooms. And they need to raise $600,000 to do this through the end of March. So churches around this area, we're taking up offerings. And ours is going to be our Christmas Eve offering. And I want to just personally ask you to be a part of this hospitality. Some of you in the room, you could maybe afford $10.00. And I'm telling you that every gift will add up. Some of you could afford $100 this year, and that would buy a night for a family in a hotel room and get them off the freezing street. Some of you, let's be honest, could take $1,000 for a week out of your savings account for a homeless person or a family, and you wouldn't even miss it. Let's be honest. I'm asking you, friends and brothers and sisters of Waterstone, that we show God's love to our community by practicing extravagant hospitality for our homeless community this season by asking you to decide to commit to this offering. You can go online and do it anytime and give. You can wait till Christmas Eve when we'll pass the bag and uh, take up that offering in our freezing parking lot uh, as outdoor service on Christmas Eve. Some of you are thinking as we finish, Larry, how do you love like that? I mean, how can you get that kind of heart that would be willing to love, even enemy love, and give that much? The only answer to that that John would give us is this. If you're born of God, you know that love. And so, my question to you have you been born again? Have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, transform your heart, have his spirit move in and take up residence in your being, and pledge your highest allegiance to Jesus? Have you made up your mind about Jesus? When he moves in, love moves in, and he melts your heart and changes you. Have you ever asked him into your life? He's waiting for you right now. He's been thinking about you. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Save me. So, if you'd like to do that now, I'd like to finish this message with a prayer of invitation. So, please feel free to bow your heads and if you've never talked to Jesus like this before and invited Him into your life, just do it with me with words like this. Lord Jesus, I do, I want to walk the rest of my life and into eternity with You. Please come into my life Forgive my sins and give me eternal life with you. And help me now as I walk through this world to partner with you and give the love away you've given to me. I give you my heart and faith, Jesus. Amen.